Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, I got a question for you. Okay. Have you ever tried to sell shit online? I don't think so. I, I know my parents have, my wife has from time to time. Um... I think I've avoided selling crap pretty much entirely, which may not be a good thing. But no, I I haven't had a nightmare uh, online experience. Okay. I'm going to bitch for a second because you love me and you'll let me do it. Um, Indeed. So I recently, Stephanie and I recently upgraded our phones. And so I have these nice new Samsung S-Mobiles set up for T-Mobile. Um, depending on how continually frustrated I am, they might still be for sale if you want to contact me for them. Uh, but I was talking to the dude at the T-Mobile store and he was just like, yeah, you know, you can trade these in, but to be honest, like you're going to get like 12 bucks from me. Honestly, that's all I can pay for them. Um, you're better off just like going on Facebook marketplace and selling them there. And I was like, I don't want to deal with that, but if all you can give me for them is 12 bucks, sure, I'll give it a shot. So I posted my very first Facebook ad marketplace or Facebook oh. marketplace ad yesterday. Oh no. Yeah. And the replies are stupid. Andy, all of them are stupid. Cuz like the first one I got was a dude who like messaged me and was like trying to lowball me for them, which, okay, I'm not mad about that. That's fine. They're used cell phones. I get it. I thought we were going to go back and forth and haggle a little bit. We'd settle somewhere in the middle. Cool. <laughs> he asked for like less than half of what I was asking for. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, that's a little low for me. How about this? Like I knock a, I knock a little bit off my price and he just goes... No, I'm trying to flip them and get them to and get these phones to some like underprivileged people. And I had to stop myself from messaging back and being like, no, you're not. You're trying to scam me. Shut the fuck up. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know this person. I don't know anything about this person. I'm just like, no, you're lying to me when you say that. Like, if you why would you flip them and be trying to get them to under wouldn't you be trying to get me to get them to the, like connect me with the underprivileged folks and like right. ask me to cut them a d- like no you're a liar go away um i had another person who decided who who like kept trying to talk to me about her relationship with her boyfriend because oh, no. like because she's like yeah you know i'm on sprint and my boyfriend's on straight talk and i'm thinking about getting straight talk and your phones are compatible with straight talk because they're t-mobile and i'm thinking about getting on phones with my boyfriend but i don't know if we're ready for that step but like i kind of think that if i have the phone in hand like how can he say no and i'm like dude i don't want to know about you taking the next step with your boyfriend to like that one's get fascinating on his... to me. Yeah, I'm like, that one feels that one feels like it should be a relationship question. <laughs> it really should. I maybe I should have like sent her the podcast link or something. I'm just like, why are you telling me about how you're thinking about trying to like get in on your boyfriend's cell phone plan? But it also sounds like you haven't talked to him about it. But also, why are you telling me about this at all? Like 
What's what's going on, Andy from Columbus, New uh, North Carolina, or Columbia, North Carolina? I don't even remember which one. I'm just like you're 45 minutes away from me, and you're talking to me about getting on your boyfriend's cell phone plan and buying these. Do you want the phones or not, Andy? Like, tell me if you. And then I got another message from some dude in Honduras that's literally just like, "Sigue disponible." Like, do you still have the phones available? And I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. "Yes." And then he just asked me for my address, and I'm like, "No, no, I'm not giving you my address, person from Honduras." Like, if you want me to ship the phone to you, I'll do that. Like, if you'll if you want to pay for shipping and prepay me for it, like my name and my photo or right there on facebook you can totally like call me out if i don't do the thing but like i'm willing to don't ask me for my address though bro like that's how you wind up with a whole bunch of magazine subscriptions you didn't realize you had paid for i'm (laughs) saying and i'm just like here's the thing everyone told me that like facebook marketplace is better than craigslist because at least on Facebook Marketplace, you have a name and a photo attached to it. And you see, like, how long they've had their Facebook account. These people have had Facebook accounts from, like, 2009, 2011. One dude from, like, 2018. And I'm sitting here just like, okay, I don't think, like, I know who you are. But I don't want to. There's something nice about Craigslist because, like, sure, if there's a 50-50 split. They'll show up and try to rob me. But, like, I don't need to know who they are. I don't know, man. It's... so I I mostly wanted to vent about it, but... (laughs) Well, here's the thing I know about you. You, like me, love a good flea market haggle. You, like me, love the walking through Chinatown and everybody's got, you know, their wares on the table... And are asking you for $12 for a belt. And you go, hell no. I can walk three tables down and get a belt over there for twelve for, for $10. So I'm not giving you $12. And then the guy's like, okay, okay, fine. $13 for a belt and this hat. And you go, yes, we have a deal. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. And there's such a joy in that. There's such a... there's Oh, the this is how like commerce was meant to work. Uh, even though it's literally not, um, vibe to that. And, and yeah, you mentioned in the first one, how like you thought you were going to go ahead and haggle and that blew up in your face. And it's like, oh yeah, you really, there's really little room for haggling in the e-commerce space. I feel like, so I don't know. I, I won't lie to you. That sounds awful, Alex. It's truly terrible. And, 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 you know, I was thinking, like, I got some extra guitar cases lying around. I was like, maybe I'll try, if this goes well, maybe I'll sell these guitar cases. Because, like, they're sitting in the closet. They're not going for anything. I can start, I can buy some, like, two-in-one gig bags where I can stick, like, two guitars in the same bag at once. So I don't need this many cases lying around. It'd be, I, I'm sitting here going, like, yeah, you know, I'll let these cases go. They're, they're not, you know. 50 bucks, 40 bucks for a case, not a big deal. I kind of don't want to do it just because I don't want to do it now. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm still going to try and get rid of these phones, even if I got to call what's-his-name who, like, lowballed me like a motherfucker and go, all right, fine, we'll split the difference, here's this, final offer, and if he goes yes, I'm like, cool, let's meet in an Ingalls parking lot or a <laughs> CVS parking lot. Stephanie was straight up like, 
I, I for COVID reasons, I don't want to talk to these people, but like, I'm going to sit in the car and I'm like, you should sit in the car. That's where all the knives are. Yeah. Yeah. Get out of the car, put the, put the merchandise down, get back in your car. They walk over. I suppose there's got to be some way to make sure they don't grab the stuff and run. Maybe it's they put the money down. That that one actually makes sense. It's like, okay, you get out of the car, you put the money down. I'll get out of the car, I'll put the merchandise down. I'll get back in my car, you can get the merchandise. Deal deal done. Again, the nice thing with the Facebook Messenger thing is I can be like, okay, you PayPal me the money, I see it on my phone, here's your stuff. Like, there we go. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> And I think there's, like, a way you can, like, file a claim if you get scammed on theirs. I don't know. I'm new at this. This sucks, Andy. I just wanted to complain. <laughs> Is the lowball guy offering you more than $12? Yes. Is that um, worth... Like whatever extra he's 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 uh, giving you, is that worth this brain hassle? You know what? We're gonna see. I I, I gotta decide because <laughs> his his lowball offer feels like insulting and shitty. And you know what? Maybe you have a point. Maybe I'm just mad that he wouldn't haggle with me. Um, yeah. Because I could have met somewhere in the middle. Like he didn't give me a bad starting offer. It's the fact that like I went down a little. And he did not go up at all. And I'm a little, I'm a little offended. He hurt my feel. I thought he was going to ask me to the dance and that we'd, you know, we, we'd, we'd, we'd do a little bit of a waltz here. But no, he just like looked at me. We like exchanged pleasantries. And then he ditched out on my ass <laughs> saying that he was going to go help underprivileged people, which I knew was a lie. Hmm. Well, either way, I cannot wait to see how this uh, climactically plays out. I, I, I want updates on Ugh. the next episode, if if you haven't gotten rid of them by now. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure all of our listeners will, too. So, hi, listeners. Welcome to Love-Hate Relationship. Thank you for bearing with us as we weaned out the truly cool people uh, who wanted to listen. Thanks, um, Dad. <laughs> Uh, what we usually do is every episode here, one of us talks about something we love, the other one talks about something we hate, and then we take your relationship questions and give our perfectly unqualified advice, which is exactly what we're going to do. Straight up. And Andy, I think uh, this time it's your turn for a love. That's right. And so I'm going to start by asking you, Alex, when you were a kid, especially like an elementary schooler, did you ever play a little game called Pokemon? I played not all the, the game, games called Pokemon. Not Andy. the Game Boy version. It's important to uh, clarify. Not not the electronic version you would play in a Game Boy, but the version that you would play on cards. The version with the fucking sweet holographic Charizard that literally everybody on the playground wanted. So here's what I have to tell you. I played every version of Pokemon. I played the Pokemon trading card game. I played the Pokemon board game. I played the Pokemon video games. I was obsessed with Pokemon. I was a huge Pokemon kid. Um, we may or may not be like having my parents frothing at the mouth, like rolling on the floor, <laughs> just like traumatized. If Power Rangers didn't do that to them, Pokemon might, because I drove them insane. Fair. But yes, okay. I 
I did collect those trading cards. I will tell you, I did not play the Pokemon trading card game very much. I actually had the video game that was based on the trading card game. Um, I played the shit out of that. That was hella oh, fun. The one for Game Boy? I fucking loved that. Yes, yes. The Pokemon trading card game, like Game Boy game, that had no continuity with the larger game. It was it was it was a weird ass thing. But it was. like I never played the actual card game with trading cards, and the biggest reason for that was because to be any good at it, you needed to be able to buy a pretty huge number of cards. And I was never able to get my parents on board with me buying a bunch of booster packs and Pokemon decks. Sure, like, sure. So I collected the cards. I would try to play a little bit, but I was just awful at it. Now, if you want to talk about Yu-Gi-Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I do. A few years later, a little card game came across my way called Yu-Gi-Oh! Which was very clearly a ripoff of, like, taking some of the concepts of Magic the Gathering and the Pokemon trading card game and mashing them together and just being like, this is a new card game. And it had a it had an anime that, looking back on, wasn't very good, but was, like, kind of really fun in a lot of ways. And I played the shit out of Yu-Gi-Oh! Because that was one where if you... Even if you didn't have great cards, if you had some decent cards, you could be pretty good at it. Exodia, the forbidden one. Okay, so I'm delighted because I don't think I ever knew about this about you, but it, it sounded to me like you were a, a collectible card game kid. Did you ever fuck around with magic? I did not. Okay. I knew kids who were into magic, and magic was always just like, one step too far. I was cool with trading cards that were attached to, like, cartoons that I enjoyed. Like, as as larger media, Magic itself, as a trading card game, was, like, intimidating to me. It felt a little too close to, like, the people who played Warhammer or, like, D&D or Pathfinder. Like, the things that took real commitment... <laughs> okay. And I was a commitment phobe when it came to trading card games. So I never played Magic. I did play Yu-Gi-Oh. I do understand how much of Yu-Gi-Oh is lifted from Magic. And I have talked to enough people who have explained to me how Magic is a technically better game. But I myself never got into it. Okay, well delightful. We're going to talk about all of these and more. Um because my love this week is collectible card games. Okay. I let's was, get it. You, you listed some here that I have never even heard of, so I'm here for this. Well, yeah, and real quick, like I I was such a collectible card game kid because my dad was as well, even though you know he was an adult, but he always loved collecting cards, and so it started me off as a young age. Um you know, you brought up the Yu-Gi-Oh cartoon show. And I just want to acknowledge that that was our generation's Transformers. Because interesting, it is blatantly a glorified commercial for the product. The product being, in this case, the Yu-Gi-Oh card game. And it absolutely worked on me. Just like so many kids in the 80s bought a bunch of Transformers because of the cartoon show. Sure. 
I, I and you know it's funny because I looking back on it, I think about that cartoon show, and like the first season or two, they had some, they would play that game in the TV show, but it was like way different rules, and it yep, had like yep. it had a bunch of shit that was clearly like hella made up on the spot, like. Oh, because this is uh, because this is a spider. It has these special web powers. Well, you if you had the actual like card of that spider, it didn't have that fucking shit at all. It had none of these effects. And <laughs> and I remember reading the rules of the actual card game and being like, this is nothing like the show. And then like the following season of the show, they like split the difference and yeah, made the yeah. like tv show rule they had a new version of the game with new rules and it worked differently and that different way it worked happened to be like 97 percent identical to the real card game so my brother and i would play Yu-Gi-Oh, and we would like we knew the cartoon well enough that we would basically just play by cartoon rules um, which would inevitably lead into filibustering made up superpower bullshit of special cards that we had. And so at the end of it all, it really became more of like who could more convincingly like act like they were Yugi pulling some magic bullshit out of their ass. And that became the game in itself. And it was very sure. enjoyable. It's time to do. I believe it. But, but the actual card game was legitimately fun, though. Oh, absolutely. And and is probably, like, I would safely say the third most popular of the collectible card games that, that ever came out to be. I think, I think you've got Magic, you've got Pokemon, and then you've got Yu-Gi-Oh! And everything else gets very niche, which is what we're doing right now. <laughs> um, so just, just an overview collectible card games it's it's something different than baseball cards or football cards it's something different than you know like your your usual deck of cards with a, a fancy themed back or something collectible card games are a a subgenre of game where each each type each style is its own game with its own rules but the basis always revolves around collecting as many as you can and then building out decks to play against other people that is what we're talking about that is what i absolutely obsessed over a bit as a kid and really it's only my own common sense that stops me from continuing to fall into that hobby as an adult, because I could so easily just blow all my money on different card games and be so happy and so poor. And so I'm, it's, it's a good thing. I'm not. <laughs> so really like people, uh, if, if we say the Pokemon card game or Yu-Gi-Oh or magic of the gathering, you have the idea um, the, the concept as a whole began around 1990, which is when magic like first came to be. And, and that, I think that's part of why magic really is kind of the king of the castle when it comes to collectible card games. Um, mm. and is a small, but dedicated nerd niche activity with dozens upon dozens upon dozens of iterations today. And that, that's part of what I love about it. And, and we can talk about that a, a bit. You know, some of the card games that I've flirted with and and played with and collected include 
again, Pokemon, Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh! But also, I used to play the Harry Potter collectible card game and the Babylon 5 card game. Uh, Legend of the Five Rings, which was this, like, mythic samurai fantasy world card game. Fucking Seventh Sea, which no one is going to remember, but was my personal favorite and was this, like crazy pirate magic world um that's not even getting into the fact that like naruto dragon ball z digimon uh pretty much any anime cartoon that you could watch has its own card game um connected to it as well as one that i played for a a a hot minute which was a christian trading card game called redemption and I'm sure, knowing you, dear boy, that you, you're going to want to take a minute and talk about this with me. I have so many questions, Andrew. I have answers, and, and you're not going to love them, and I don't know if I love them. Okay, here's the point. Is this, is this I assume, like all the other games you just referenced, I'm going to try and do this quickly, y'all, so sure. that we don't spend all of our time talking about this. But major questions. Is it still a one-on-one card game the same way that all those other games were? Yes. Okay, does one person play as heaven and one person play as hell? Yes, literally. Did... uh, My brain is broken. Um, (laughs) So what you're telling me is... If you ever wanted to, like, these sweet little Christian children would have to decide who who played as heaven and who played as hell. Yep. And if you're uh, like my family, then the kids would play as the... Uh, the good, noble, like, good, holy characters, and then your parents would play as the evil characters. <laughs> Here's Was hell just so much cooler? Kind of. I mean, so so I, I got to tell you, I played this game um, maybe f- six or seven times. Um, this was like the last card game that my dad was like, oh, this shit, we are getting all of them and we are collecting them. Um, and it was it was pretty new when I played it, which had to have been like 2003-ish. Um, and so it was very much like, okay, hell, you've got like snakes and all the wicked characters of the Bible and demons and like curses and shit. And, and here's one that is literally like the evil goat. Um, and here's one that is the beast from revelations. And then on the other side, you would have like all of the good noble characters of the Bible. You would have like the way they would try to make it cool is it's like, oh, the good side gets archangels. And we're going to take all this art from a comic book about archangels, not archangel from the X-Men comics, mind you, but um, holy archangels. And we're going to do that. And we're going to have like purifying light and like. Joseph will be a uh, a card and Jesus Christ will be a card and Pontius Pilate will be like this neutral card that you can make evil. And so it was literally like we are going to take the characters and themes from the Bible, expound upon them as much as possible and create a card game out of it. So the fucked up thing about this is you do understand that this means that I, I don't know the rules of this card game, but if Jesus is a card character and like 
all the satanic shit is card characters. You've got little sweet Christian children who have to kill Jesus. It's like Final Fantasy three all over again. Like <laughs> this. Yes. I I kind wow. of I I kind of um I kind of dove back into the lore and the rules to try and remember. The whole point is you are playing for lost souls, quote unquote. And so it's like, you know, you've got the angels trying to like keep them safe and then the demons trying to corrupt their souls and and drag them down to hell. Um so it it wasn't a game where like you were literally destroying things although you you could have been and i'm sure there was some sort of like lip service to like don't worry jesus christ didn't just get killed by lucifer he just got like sent back to heaven or something (laughs) but at the same time yeah you could literally have like you you there's got to be at least one teenager in ohio who like played this into their late twenties and like built up this like master evil deck and was just like totally, uh, going off this weird power trip of playing this watered down version of magic, but it meant he could be like the biblical Lucifer. Yeah. This is the way that you discover who the like future edge Lords of your youth group are. Oh yeah, Absolutely. Oh my god. Okay, I'm gonna move on from this because well, I could real, honestly real... do an entire episode about just this. Real but... quick, the, just one last thing, one last little surprising bit of horror for you. Redemption is still going on today. Like, this shocked me. I didn't know this until I was digging it up for my notes because I was like, oh man, I remember there was this Heaven and Hell themed one. What was the name of that? How how did that do? Uh, the last expansion pack for this game came out this year and is called the Lineage of Christ expansion. This game is still around. Andy. And that's fucking hard. <laughs> Andy, did you grow up on the Left Behind books? <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, I did. Okay. I did not. I did not. I, you know, it's something about my Catholic upbringing. We, we didn't, we didn't play with that stuff for us. I, I, I'm going to, this is going to sound more sarcastic than it is, but it is very much the attitude that was taken. Religion for me growing up was simultaneously something to take very seriously and not to lose sleep over. So, You don't read children's fiction books about religion. No, you read your fucking Bible. Hmm. But at the same time, it's like, don't worry so much, Alex. It's fine. Like, it's fine. (laughs) This is nothing to stress out over. Just go to church on Sundays and, like, do your catechism and do your rites and you'll be fine. Catholics are weird, is what I'm trying to say. But, um... But I didn't grow up on Left Behind. Left Behind was explained to me when I was all when I had already lost my faith. Like mm-hmm. someone explained it to me, and I just kind of sat there and I went, "This exists. This is what they. This is what they're <laughs> like. This is normal. This is you. You just you just grew up on. Like I understood Veggie Tales. Okay, I get it. Like." Weird cartoons, and you're going to put Bible messages in it. Okay, I get it. 
I saw clips of Willie Ames as Bible man. It did nothing for me. Inspired by the word of God and equipped with unyielding faith, Miles pledged to fight evil in the name of God. This card game makes me feel the way I did when I learned what Left Behind was. Sure. For those of you who don't know, Left Behind is a children's book series about a post-rapture universe. Oh, let me let me correct you just real quick there. Left Behind is absolutely not a children's book series. <laughs> Left Behind is an adult book series. Uh, it's like 10 or 12 volumes. And I know this because like my parents read these books at the exact same time. And it is one of the only memories I have about them, like having an excited shared passion and like talking about these books as they were reading them and having their own little two person book club about it. Uh, there, this book, this book series is all about the end times. And like one of the main characters is the antichrist. And like, there's a book where, um, it is all centered around an assassination attempt on the Antichrist because he is ascending to be like the new world order leader, like legally elected, because that's, you know, one of the whole big things in the end times is um, the, the, the Antichrist will appear to be this great, wonderful leader, but he'll really be evil. There was left behind colon the children which I absolutely read because my parents gave it to me and I was like, Oh sure. I'll read this. You're reading this. And they weren't very good. Why did all the like fundy kids I knew like say that they first read it when they were like 10 though? I mean, they probably fucking did, but (laughs) like, I don't have room to talk. I watched the Omen, which is the better antichrist movie. Um, when I was probably nine, well, uh, watch the Omen, y'all. It's actually a great and the Leaf Schreiber Julia Stiles remake, solid, shot for shot, but solid. In any case, <laughs> we are so off topic, Andy. I knew we would be, but I wanted to just take a minute and and let everybody know Redemption the card game exists. Um, the the thing that made me laugh when I was re researching it is. The, the collected, like, consensus is it's not that great of a card game. It's, like, magic for beginners. Like, structurally, like, the rules and the strategy at play, there's only so much you can do. Sure. So it's not very entertaining. But The Pokemon trading card game wasn't a very good card game. At least not compared to, like, your Magics and Yu-Gi-Oh's. Yeah. So, now, to, to get us back on the rails, um, I just... This was this was such a good hobby for me. This was this was something I could do with my dad and and that was honestly um a really fun thing for the most part. We'll we'll get into a story or two that that is very much the opposite feel. But like I can remember my dad buying boxes and boxes and boxes of these cards and it became like the thing we would do on a Thursday night is just open pack after pack and go down the checklist and make sure that we had every single card, figure out how many duplicate duplicates we had. Um, it was very pleasing for a, a developing OCD brain to just be like, yes, check it off, check it off, check it off. Um, this was a fun, a, a fun thing to do for, for, for me and my dad. Um, and I have a, a smattering of random facts to, 
just kind of throw at you really but but all of them are true and most of them are entertaining i think spoke about pokemon pokemon is definitely like the game that was the gateway drug for collectible card games um Mm -hmm. my dad most certainly saw the cards on a business trip to hong kong or japan or something and was like oh these look cool i'll get these for my kids and we uh, as children my brother and i fell in love with them and would play the game with my dad and it, it awoke a, a hobby and, a, and and the bug in him to the point where he he was like okay i'm getting all these fucking cards up to a certain extent i can remember being in hawaii on a vacation and we're just walking around and find, you know, the random ass, um, game shop. Mm-hmm. We walk in and my dad sees they have a box of the then brand new first expansion pack for Pokemon. It was the jungle themed one. It had Scyther on the cover. Yeah. Um, and so my dad tries to buy the box and the shopkeeper's like, no, sorry, we have a policy. We, uh, we don't let people just buy the box because you know, that, that way you have all of the cards and, and we're trying to discourage that. And my dad goes, okay, fine, fine. Buys half of the box, buys as many cards as they'll let him buy. We walk out and then my dad turns around, hands me like a $50 bill and is like, okay, go get the rest of the friggin' box. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very it's a very your dad's story that's a I very love it. it's a very my dad's story um i suppose i'm grateful it was collectible cards and not like smack heroin <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um but so that absolutely happened and and my dad has to this day binders and binders and binders of like I want to say the first four or five expansions like Pokemon is still going on to this day. There are new cards every, you know, every three months or so. And so to collect them all is truly a Herculean uh, task. But my dad has probably six binders worth of every Pokemon card for like the first three years of the game, every rare one, every hollow foil, and for the longest time, he was doing the Beanie Babies thing where it was like, these are going to pay for the boat someday. And I think that's totally backfired because the uh, the bubble burst. But still uh, still a thing he has in the back of his problem is there uh, are a room. couple that are worth money, but like just a couple. You got to go through the process of uh, figuring out which ones and then find a buyer and, you know. I wonder what a, a holofoil Charizard would go for on Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> Uh, fuck that, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure they, I'm pretty sure, um, oh God, no, I feel like I read a story that, uh, one of them went for like a few hundred bucks on yeah. eBay. Yep. Um, hang on. I'm literally just, I'm doing the thing that I said at the beginning of the podcast, like way back when that I would never do, <laughs> but I'm Googling holographic Charizard. I mean the buy it now. Uh, on one of these is a uh, hundred and sixty-five bucks. Here's a two hundred dollar one. Here's a two hundred eighty-nine dollar one for one fucking card. It's definitely. I mean, it's not the uh, it's it's not the thousands of dollars I'm sure he envisioned, but that is certainly 
uh, an insane return on investment. Yeah, you know, like for for the stacks and stacks of cards that are worth nothing, you know, you have one card that's worth three hundred bucks. God knows how much money he spent on booster packs and all of that, but if he's got a handful of those, yeah. Or Lord forbid, two holographic Charizards. Holy shit! <laughs> you know there might be there. There might exactly be. I don't know. I'll have to dig through those and, and find out. Uh, maybe do the legwork for him and see if he wants to sell. Um, I, I reference Pokemon so much because that is definitely the main game. Um, my brother and I were super into Yu-Gi-Oh, but by then my dad had uh, stopped giving as much of a shit. And and probably yeah. part of that was because of what I did to all of his magic cards. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you told me this story once. <laughs> I, I've told you this story. I'll tell it again for the show. I, I was in kindergarten. I, I had to have been in kindergarten or first grade. And my dad is collecting magic cards because he's a huge fantasy nerd. And, and Pokemon was so cool. Let me get this more adult version. Um, and so we're talking like pretty OG magic cards. And he had a, a whole box full of them. And I remember playing with a friend of mine at my house and we played a round of magic. And then me being a, a sweet and innocent, like seven year old, just gave a box full of magic cards that technically weren't mine to give to my friend. And this wasn't even my best friend or anything. He was just a buddy. And I was like, here, these are fun. You like them. You'll like me. (laughs) And I vaguely remember like where me and my friend are are walking out the door and, and his mom's like waiting in the drive and he's walking out with a box. And my dad's like, uh, what are you doing? My friend just goes, oh, Andy gave these to me. He said it was okay. And good on my dad for not turning to a seven or eight year old and taking a box of cards out of his hand and being like, the fuck they aren't. (laughs) My dad just let the cards go, but uh, we didn't get magic cards after that. (laughs) I'm... I'm going to be honest with you. If I were in your dad's shoes, I would have politeful I would have politely but firmly taken the cards out of the 7-year-old's hands. But <laughs> I mean, I gave all of my Pokémon cards to my cousin cuz she was into it and I was like, I haven't touched these in years. None of them are worth anything. Here, have fun. And I told her up front, I'm like, none of them are worth shit. They're all, like, just stuff that I got, like, leftovers from friends, the occasional thing that I had gotten in a trade. Just take them. Enjoy. If they're worth any money, congrats. You got money. That's my contribution to your college fund. She's a lawyer now. Like, she's (laughs) she's fine. (laughs) She's doing better than me. What up, Melanie? (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, like... I mean, I remember I definitely heard heard hell um, for doing that. But at the end of the day, this kid wound up with a bunch of magic cards and then uh, we stopped getting them. Uh, what we didn't stop getting was my absolute favorite. Like I mentioned, this game called Seventh Sea, which was this just this was a good fucking card game. And it's a, at least in my opinion, and it's a huge tragedy. It had a relatively short lifespan compared to most games, but this was entirely pirate themed and like this own 
made up magical pirate universe where like you had stand-ins for the Spanish and the French and the English, but then you also had like just straight up pirate pirates. And of course, what good are pirates unless there are also zombie pirates? So that was the big uh, expansion was zombie pirates. I still have pretty much every single card they ever made uh, for seventh C um, sitting in a box in the back of my closet because that game was my shit. I would play this game the most out of any of the games I played with my dad, mainly because it was the hardest one for me to win. And that was the trick with my dad is he would play card games until his son could beat him. And then they were bullshit. (laughs) Not, not a healthy outlook overall. No, not the best look. That's why we stopped playing the Harry Potter card game. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the seventh C card game was my absolute pride and joy. I loved this thing so much. I would bring these cards in for show and tell being like, look at these things. They're fucking cool. <laughs> and then wonder, like I was also the kind of kid who on the playground would definitely like play Lord of the Rings or Dragon Ball Z and inevitably just you're running around a field pretending to do something. Ka- me. So that's very on brand with me. What I hear is you're adorable. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, so, so card games had their big boom and that was really sort of the period between like 1995 and, and 2005, you know, computer games were certainly on the rise, but there, we, we didn't have Uh, smartphones yet so there really wasn't any apps you could play so there was still room for this hobby to be a lot more mainstream and and since then you know obviously it's it's fallen down a bit except for the massive ones you can still find pokemon cards hell you can still find Yu-Gi-Oh cards um and of course magic but one thing i actually really kind of like and enjoy collectible card games have definitely slowly but surely moved into the app space and into the digital realm to the point where a you know the term was always tcg for trading card game or ccg for collectible card game now we have dccg digital collectible card game um and magic has has moved where now they have like the fully corporeal cards, but then you can also play completely online. Um, and also probably the biggest one is the Warcraft themed Hearthstone game, which is entirely app based, entirely digital, but also fun as shit. And I've absolutely like sunk in several hours playing that game. You know what? I really appreciate hearing that because like and, and this is and this is kind of my approach on this. Like, I really liked those card games that I played, the ones that I played. Mm-hmm. And I said up front, like a big reason I liked the Yu-Gi-Oh card game so much was because you didn't have to have the best cards to be pretty good at it. Like, 
I will never forget, like, the the in the TV show for Yu-Gi-Oh, there's always this giant deal that, like, if you have, like, a Blue-Eyes White Dragon card, it's, like, one of the most powerful cards in the entire game, and it's so strong, and it does so much. And I will never forget playing the card game with a friend of mine who pulled out a Blue-Eyes White Dragon, and then, this is, this is bullshit meaningless to anyone who didn't actually play this game, but... I remember he did that, and I literally just flipped over a man-eater bug. <laughs> and the man-eater bug's special ability was that if you flipped it over, it could automatically destroy one of your opponent's monsters. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I was like, cool. That's that's a very that's a really nice blue eyes you have. Here's my man-eater bug. And it was gone. And I was just like, that man-eater bug card came with like a starter pack. It's it's worthless. It is not even worth the paper it's printed on. And I just defeated the like super big powerful famous card in it by just flipping. It was it was a game that was very democratic in how good you could be without that many great cards, without right. that many rare cards. So I think about that and compare that to the Pokémon trading card game. Now, with the Pokémon trading card game, I loved playing that Game Boy game. But the great thing about that Game Boy game was that the way you got extra packs in the game, the way you got new cards in the game, was by winning battles. So you would win battles, you'd get money, you could buy new cards within the game. So by being good at the game, you got access to better cards. So it evened out there. So even though that was a game that you needed good cards to be good at, if you were pra- if you practiced the game, if you did it a bunch and you got good at it you had the reward system to be able to get those better cards. You couldn't do that in real life. I'm hearing here, some of these games have moved into the app space, the digital space, and I'm assuming it's not total pay-for-play um, in a digital space. Not totally. Maybe that's... that's it's yeah, certainly a component. Sure, but if it's not totally pay-for-play, there's a chance that it is a little more democratized in that sense. And and I've never played Magic. I've never played Hearthstone. I don't know how the rules work, but if you need better cards to be any decent at it. Um, but I'm a big fan of that kind of democratization because I was a kid who didn't have money to spend on cards. My parents weren't going to spend money on trading cards for me. It was, it's 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 frankly to them it was a it was it was a dumb thing to spend money on like. Why are you going to spend money on a bunch of cards? It's it's silly. Um, so that idea touches me very deeply and is very meaningful to me as someone who came up that way. Sure. That's a great take. That's a great uh, a point to be made. And and I appreciate that you like that. I I always loved the strategy component the same way. Your, your man-eater bug story absolutely delights me. Um and that was always the mark of a good card game for me is like how much strategy in, is involved and is there one thing you can do that is just so utterly broken that nobody can beat it or can anybody theoretically beat anybody else as long as um, they prepare their deck correctly and then have the luck of actually getting the cards they needed. Um, that was always how it was for um, like seventh C or magic or hearthstone is a bit like that. One of the most 
honestly, one of the best things about Hearthstone with it being purely digital is you don't have to actually play anybody. You can just play against the computer and the computer does like this thing where it's like, okay, I have a very specific strategy and it's a good one, but it's the only thing I can do is the computer. And then you as the human player can uh, adapt and figure out how to beat the thing and feel like you're beating the, the, the chess computer. I dig it. I yeah. do. And, and you know what? You mentioned chess. Like I, I was the chess guy. Chess is arguably a very democratic game. You learn the rules. Everyone starts in their own same place with these apps, with the app based version. I mean, it sounds like you get to, you get to participate. And that's a thing that's constantly missing from this kind of thing. Sure. So I really appreciate that. I do. Well, I'm so glad uh, just to wrap it up, you know, my final point and, the reason I think the real reason I love these games, because I would collect them so much more than I would actually play them. And, you know, I mentioned mm. I, I mentioned balanced play was an important factor in a good card game. The other thing, the essential thing, the more important thing for me, there had to be good flavor to the cards. And, and from that, what I mean is, you know, all these cards have specialized individual artwork of the thing you know you've got a picture of charmander or mm -hmm. pikachu or uh for magic you've got all these different types of land so you've got swamps with ghosts and and mountains and all this stuff and i would stare at these cards i would stare at the artwork and just piece by piece accumulate the knowledge for what this world would look like. It's, it's such a interesting way of world building to like throw this stuff at you, especially the more high concept games like magic and seventh C throw the stuff at you. If you want to pay attention, if you want to put the pieces together, you figure out how all these little things interlock um, and the artwork would do that. And the other thing that would do that would be flavor text, which is why I you know, called it flavor. And that would always be just this little, this usually one sentence thing about a card, about how, oh, this knight does a certain thing. And, and okay, that's that knight story. And oh, look here, a hundred cards later, I see that knight in the picture of another card and it's like, oh, okay, this robber is the knight's nemesis. Oh, okay. So now, okay. Now I've got that agency and now I care more about these two cards because I know they're interlocked like that. Um, seventh C was its own, its own story that like, no matter who, what faction you were playing as they had their own story and it was overarching and it was all very like complete. And I loved it. I loved it so much. So thank you for walking down memory lane with me, man. I, uh, I'm going to be a very good boy and not go out and uh, restart a magic addiction. But I might go see uh, if Hearthstone, it's been a minute since I've played Hearthstone. I might go see what's going on there. I might go see if there's a way to play any of these old games online. Um, in a digital sense without having to buy the cards and uh, see where that takes me. So thank you, man. Yeah, of course. I'm, I feel like I saw an app for some of these card games, just like some digital version. So look into it. Hey, if you find a link to something, let me know. I'll throw it down in the show notes. Absolutely. 
All right. In the meantime, you ready to move on? Yeah. We're at the 51 minute mark, so I'll try to keep mine a little bit shorter. <laughs> it's a small topic. It's not, it's not, it's, it's, sweetie, please. We need joy in this world. I'm about to bring us all down. So <laughs> moving on to our hate topic. A simple question to start us in on. Dear boy, tell me your favorite post-apocalypse. I want you to pull from the full gamut of your movies, TV, books, comics, yeah. the whole thing. What is your favorite just type of post-apocalypse scenario? Want to specify favorite or the one I think is most likely? Favorite. Okay. Alien Invasion. Interesting. Okay, not thinking about that one. Why? Because in in all forms of media I've seen it, it leads into a human resistance scenario. Um, mm-hmm. And that is one of the few apocalypse scenarios I can envision where people actually have to band together instead of becoming tribal and factional and then uh, fighting amongst themselves. Um, aliens, it, it, it's, it's the Ozymandias thing from Watchmen. I was literally about to say that. Yeah, exactly. Aliens are one of the few like threats you could give us as a species where we have a half a shot at actually banding together. And I'm, I I just, I, that gives me the tiniest kernel of hope. It would still be apocalyptic. It would still be the insanity of, especially if they're, you know, your stereotypical, highly technologically advanced alien invaders. It's, it's still, like fighting way above punching way above your weight. But I like the idea of something where at least humans have to band together. I triggered it 35 minutes ago. Hmm. I like that. I like that your apocalyptic scenario (laughs) is the one where like everybody gets along and they're friends. That's incredibly on brand for me. (laughs) That is so on brand for you. It doesn't, it also doesn't change the fact that, I think that's actually more likely in a lot of scenarios than a lot of people give credence for, but I love that that's what you zero in on. So thank you, dear boy. For reference, mine is zombies. I just love, like, I've loved zombie stories for, like, probably two decades now. I always think that they're very interesting to dive into as a concept. Um, I don't know how likely they are to be, like, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and be like, what's the likelihood of zombies? I'm like, no. But, like, the idea of in a world-ending scenario, things going down the way they do in, like, the fucking Walking Dead, I have my qualms with that. But I I do appreciate it as media. I love that you went with Alien Invasion because that's one that I've just straight wouldn't have even thought of. I had to think about it. But, like, the biggest thing is, like, I, I wouldn't want to be thirsty and like most apocalypses you're going to be very thirsty but like i was like okay zombies probably going to be thirsty always on the run um the other one being you know nuclear holocaust um probably going to be thirsty if i survive a nuclear holocaust and that is the added problem where i can't really drink the water because it's irradiated (laughs) so you know same thing happens with water worlds so exactly at that point you play you you pretend you're Kevin Costner and you drink your own piss, but yeah. uh, okay. I appreciate that lead in. 
This one is, I, I'm not going to front, this one's a little bit haphazard for me, but I, it's something that's been on my mind, and, and everyone listening here, you live, you, all of you live in a post-election atmosphere, we talked about this on the last episode, uh, we are not, we're like a week out from the election, a week and a half out from the election as of time of recording. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't know what kind of world you're living in right now, um, we're banking on the fact that, uh, at the very least, society will not have collapsed to the point where uh, we can still release podcasts and expect that the uh, folks who listen to us on the regular will still be listening to us uh, even after a hiatus. But I am really, really sick and tired of apocalypse fantasies. And these have taken a lot of weird turns and have come into a lot of weird variations. So I'm trying to wrangle a fairly large topic that I actually think is much more uh, across the aisle um, politically, sociologically, and economically speaking than a lot of people give credence for. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's worth talking about just as something that's really, really shitty. Sure. So if you'll indulge me. Absolutely. Um, yeah. While I have nothing against and have even thoroughly enjoyed a lot of apocalyptic fiction and media, we talked about the Left Behind books before. I haven't read them. I'm not going to read them, but they fall into this category. Um, I am extremely over the real-life fetishism and fantasizing that seems to occur around different types of apocalyptic scenarios. So... Whether it is nuclear winter or zombies, um, deserts and water worlds, both of which kind of come from a, some climate change anxiety, I'm pretty sure. Um, the rapture, or even what is actually probably more likely to happen, um, even though I question the likelihood of any of these things, war and plague. The, there is a significant vocal number of either online fanboys or online and in real life preppers who seem to be like gunning for an end of the world and the end of the world they're gunning for always seems to have them coming out on top sure <laughs> And that bothers me. Um, in particular, two very real groups in the United States um, who are banking on a certain type of downfall. And maybe this isn't an apocalypse. Maybe this is just a societal downfall. But you have doomsday preppers and, if I may say so, the evangelical right. The former are preparing for a second civil war. Or for there to be some kind of destruction of the American and global economies and government. Or for some disease to wipe out all of existence. This kind of runs from your, your Boogaloo people all the way out to your QAnon people. And even beyond that, because I feel like we're at the point now where, you know, you see this stuff... Do you know how many liberal friends of mine are asking me about buying guns? I think I talked about this on a previous episode. How many people are really, really concerned 
that there's going to be this giant shift in political power that's going to render everything that gives them stability, render it all useless, moot, pointless. Um, And I, this is from me, the nihilist. I don't think that's that likely. You know, I, I'm talking to people about like, what's going to happen post-election. And I'm sitting here going like, you know, I, I lead a decently close to middle class lifestyle. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be okay, you guys. I don't like to admit that because it sounds like I'm downsizing about a very real set of horrible circumstances. But like, the problems didn't start with the presidency and they're not going to end there either. And the problems at hand, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't think I'm important enough to be dragged out into the streets. Maybe that's just me. So, um, so a brief, a brief thing. Would you say that you feel like you have a sense of purpose in your life? Yeah. I think that's a massive factor. And, you know, looking at the, especially the groups that you mentioned, um, I don't want to just immediately ostracize doomsday preppers and the evangelical, right. But at the same time, they make it pretty easy to, um, (laughs) there is a book I very much enjoy a book. I've actually recommended to you called jam, which, Oh God, I should have remembered that for my answer. That is about an apocalypse scenario in which a, uh, tidal wave of man eating strawberry jam destroys Australia. Yeah, that's um, that's by the same dude who did who does uh, zero punctuation. That's right? right. That is by Yahtzee Croshaw. Um, not the main character of Jam, but the main character's buddy um, adapts really well to the apocalypse scenario and the new way of life, uh, and is like kind of super excited about it. And they they go into detail in the book about how that's kind of because he was just a schlub who kind of didn't really have a job worth having and didn't really have any sense of purpose. And so the apocalypse as a reset where he could then reestablish his social position and his social importance and kind of become like a leadership figure in the apocalypse um, is something that I feel like a lot of these same people, a lot of these people who fetishize it, probably deep down really think about it and really hope would be the case, you know, in the apocalypse. And of course I'm going to survive long enough into the apocalypse for this to happen. But in the apocalypse, I can be whoever I want. And I, I don't have to be this lonely guy in a dead end job who really uh, only has a few friends and, and really doesn't think I'm going to make anything of my life. I can make something out of my life. If I'm a zombie hunter, like Rick Grimes, leader of the people. So yeah, yeah. I kind of wish that does happen. So I have a chance to show what I'm really worth. Damn it. Exactly. Also, also, these are the kind of people who get uh, radicalized, but you know, no, I mean, then that's fair. That's that's a fair point. And I'm not sitting here going like, I expect, I'm not sitting here saying that I expect that people are literally thinking a zombie apocalypse is happening. Right. But there are people who think, who are in the anticipation of a certain kind of 
destruction of society as we know it. I don't want to pretend that kind of destruction can't happen. I don't. The same way that it was very silly for us all to pretend that we couldn't have fascism ingratiate itself into American politics. We absolutely have. It's already been done. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to pretend that kind of thing. There's, there's a great Robert Evans podcast about the possibility of a second American Civil War. And in that, he he kind of posits using real-world examples of other regimes that have dealt with very similar shit to what we're doing now, how that looks. And the consistent thing that's kind of a through line there is there's a giant real shift in stability, but there's still more people who get up and go to a job than not. You know, maybe on their walk to work, they have to walk by some mortar rounds going through in the town square. And they just get used to that. Mm-hmm. Something I didn't mention in my notes to you, Andy, but real collapse, real end of the world is a lot more banal and boring when it actually happens in places than anyone really wants to admit sure the downfall of your government does not create anarch some kind of weird right-wing interpretation of anarchy real anarchy real live anarchy looks like communes and small villages barter-based economies at the end of the day it's just a shrinking of what society already looks like and no but the thing is that's not fun that's not you in a caravan shooting down people who are stealing your food stores the fantastical element of an end of the world scenario is always so lost and that bugs the shit out of me you know like I spend so much time on this podcast constantly railing against people who don't pay enough attention yeah. or people who don't put enough work into their beliefs, into challenging them and thinking them through. And onto that list, I just want to add people who want to pretend that life in the end of the world is more interesting than it's going to be boring. It's gonna be boring, man. It's very banal. The worst part is, uh, you know, movies will stop coming out so that we can't sensationalize the disaster as it is happening. You know, that's fair. That's fair. Um, something I didn't, I didn't finish. I didn't finish this point, but I do want to get it out so it doesn't just sound like I'm one of the shitty new atheists that I was railing against like twenty episodes ago. <laughs> Um, I point out the evangelical right in my criticism here, and I point them out for a very particular reason, not because I'm sitting here going like there's something wrong with being religious. I don't want to pretend that that is the point. My problem is the very real segment of the evangelical right that is leveraging political power on a very particular interpretation of a very particular book of the Bible to come true. 
and that they've put enough stock in it to basically turn the sovereignty of half a dozen Middle Eastern nations into a joke. Mm-hmm. I... It is a hard thing for me to talk about. The idea that there is a significant group of American culture that whether they're thinking that the rapture is going to happen and, you know, revelations is going to come true at the seat of Israel or that Russia and China are somehow going to send over a bunch of warheads and it's going to be Red Dawn, but not Red Dawn. Like, whatever the scenario is, there's a fantastical element about it. And in all of the fantasies about it, I think what, what, what gets to me, what consistently gets to me, is how little real how much of it occupies mental space and how little of that mental space is used critically does that make sense well yeah because that's what i was talking about with the sensationalism like if nothing else it becomes exciting to think about and think about in a way that is exciting and so you get this kind of like circuit going in your brain where you aren't thinking about it critically but you're thinking about it in a way that entertains you you will ride eternal shiny and chrome yeah and and i i look at all of this through the lens of media because that's i i Please, I'm a child of the 90s and the early 2000s. That's how I view the world. Um, And when I think about it through that lens of media, I'm always sitting here just like, okay, everyone seems to think it's going to be the purge. And all of us are simultaneously the good guys in the purge, but also the good guys, but still getting to do all of the cool shit that the bad guys in the purge get to do. Uh Uh-huh. Like, I, The Walking Dead might be the best example, or or zombie media in general, and and you know I I gotta take some ownership there. I I've spilled my fair share of um, pixels on the internet talking about like prepping for a zombie apocalypse. My first project, my first creative project on the internet was running a blog for a hot minute about prepping for the zombie apocalypse. Um, and that was just a hobby. That was just a thing I did for fun. But I was like, this is a really cool and interesting way to kind of zero in my thoughts on like, essentially, you know, the boy, the, the boy scout shit that they taught you, Andy, yep. like yep. being prepared for anything that happens, having a certain amount of physical fitness or basic life skills or, mental and physical toughness or knowing how to fight or how to use a weapon it's just stuff that interested me and i put it through this lens and not and you know that i'm not going to sit here and pretend that that blog was anything important it wasn't no one read it it was nothing but you know i sat in this space for a minute and did you ever watch george romero's uh diary of the dead um I don't think so. Okay. Um, 
so you know george a romero best known for night of the living dead um dawn of the dead um day of the dead day of the dead all, all these terrific zombie movies um he had one that was critically panned and it did very poorly but i actually really really love it it's called diary of the dead and it was um you know it was what he does it's a zombie apocalypse scenario but it was told through the lens of social media so it was this group of college kids who uh who basically get a hold of a like RV and they leave their college to go like pick up their families and and the whole time they're like filming what they encounter and they're like uploading it to YouTube or uploading it to MySpace and they're also that's how they're seeing stuff and then they're slowly watching those channels kind of fall down as they're either being censored or no longer manned as huh. you know the zombie apocalypse it's great yeah i, I, love I that. actually legitimately love this movie um and i don't understand why it didn't get like any any additional praise maybe it was just came out at the wrong time but um there's a scene I distinctly remember from there where they meet like military people, like National Guardsmen or some kind of military people. And they show up and they're like, oh, my God, thank you. You're here. You're you're going to like save us and you're going to like take us to your base and, you know, help us out. And what they end up doing is robbing them. Okay. Like it's a detached National Guard group and they just end up. Like, they don't hurt them, but they pull out their guns, they tell them, stop recording, then the camera shuts off, and then when the camera comes back on, you see them driving away, and they're like, they just fucking robbed us. They took all our food, they took all our water, they took, like, a bunch of the stuff that we had lying around here, they took our supplies, they robbed us. And you don't 100% know why, the only thing you kind of know is... They are clearly not beholden to anybody else, and they're just, they were willing to kill for those supplies. They would have preferred not to, and they ended up stealing it all. And I just sit here and I go, all right, what I take from that scene in this Romero movie is power, power shifts, authority shifts, and at the end of the day, the things, the, the structure that they, that we rely on, the military is going to be here to save us. The government is going to be here to save us. When the shit goes down, those are the things that will betray you. Just walk away. Give you a pump, a gasoline, and I spare you lives. And it doesn't change the fact that there's a whole lot of people playing Call of Duty games where they're shooting zombies. And and it's military and it's fantasy and that bugs me. This is this is one of the vaguest topics I've had in a minute, but there's something about this that sticks in my craw, Andrew, and it's hard for me to articulate it properly. I think you just did. It's it's the it's the underlining of the word apocalypse fantasy. It is a it it becomes a fantasy and I don't think 
the 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 Venn diagram of people who are realistic that in an apocalypse scenario I will probably be dead within a week at most and the people who are like in an apocalypse scenario I'm going to be fucking prepared and right and going to like become the sheriff of the new world order and mad max my way around and be fine are completely separate circles and probably a lot more people who are in the second circle should really realistically assess that they would be in the first circle and they aren't and I know you well enough to know you you often think about worst case scenarios. Worst case scenario <laughs> is we actually are all put to the task and and it's time to like, you know, buck up or shut up about how ready we are for the apocalypse. And a lot of these people are going to be left wanting, which means there's just going to be a lot of tragedy in that way. So I, I get why it upsets you, my man, for sure. Okay. I, I I worry sometimes that I'm screaming into the ether when I get to these societal topics. <laughs> um, you know, fu- last thing that I just want to talk about this, and I've alluded to this already, you know. I... The people who... When situations like this kind of occur, um, going back to that Evans podcast, like... When he talked about, you know, the fall of Rojava um, or any or any number of these like just complete collapses of society that have occurred in various destabilized nations. The thing that he regularly comes back to is what what immediately happens is not bands of warlords taking over the land. What happens is a barter system. Mm. It's a community springs up. It's. Okay, well, head scratch, head scratch, head scratch. We've got some houses here. There's some houses like the, the we have a community here of people of various families uh, within about a mile radius. Um, okay, I know uh, how to fix cars. Uh, my neighbor three doors down is a veterinarian. Uh, he's not a medical doctor, but he's the closest thing to a medical doctor we have. So let's make sure that he's safe in case anyone gets hurt. Um, You guys over there, you know how to, like, garden and plant things. Do you think we can maybe start, like, a little bit of a farm? Okay, cool. All right, let's start a little bit of a farm there. We'll clear some land for you there. Um, You two, the two former military guys, um, we need some protection. Do you have weapons? Okay, we have some weapons. Can we set up a patrol? Okay, teach us how to use the weapons so that we can add to the patrol. Okay, cool. You guys teach how to farm so that more people can farm. Okay, great. Um, And then we'll keep the doctor safe. And uh, how do we get medicine? How do we get... Like, it's that kind of thing. That's what happens in these scenarios. And I think that it... It, it more than anything, Andy, why is it so hard for me to try and give people a hopeful message? I think what I want to <laughs> leave people with out of this is there is a lot of hand-wringing about the end of the world. You know, if you think the rapture is coming, 
you should probably live your life like it's not. That sounds like the more Christ-like thing to do anyway. Yeah. If you think nuclear winter is coming, if you think the second American Civil War is coming, if you think destruction is coming, the thing to learn are useful skills. And those skills are rarely combat. Those things are community building and learning who your neighbors are and figuring out how to allocate resources and ration and purify water and build things. Those are the ways that you become the survivors of an apocalypse. It's not by loading up an AR, a stack, a cache of AR-15s and ammo. It's not. That stuff is cool. I'm the first one to admit that stuff is cool. I said this when we talked about you know, uh, when we talked about the gun, the gun issues Mm -hmm. and some of those skills are useful. Sure. But like, I think what I want to do more than anything else is give people a, a bubble burst. Stop pretending your apocalypse fantasies are indicative of some dark world where humanity cannot exist. And remember humanity and society came to exist Not because we were good at killing each other, but because we were good at cooperating. Our population boomed when we got good at crops and shelter and communities. The sign of a civilized organization is not tools, but Mm. a fossil of a healed leg. Because a healed leg means that that person whose leg was broken and then healed had support and community most animals with a broken leg die they get eaten they starve but if you have a broken leg that heals if you have evidence of that you know that at that point there was sufficient structures of a society that existed there and they gathered around the person with the broken leg and took care of them until it healed that is a society and at the end of the world The only thing that truly destroys humanity is the destruction of life. So don't fantasize about an end of the world where you kill things. Fantasize about an end of the world where you help people and you'll be somewhere slightly better. You managed to pull it out, man. Pull it out into a a hopeful message. Oh my god, I'm exhausted. Like, (laughs) well, optimists do this. Uh, magic and coffee, I I imagine, because I I I know magic's got to be part of it. I hope you're not too tired to go into our last segment, um, because for the first time in a minute, we have an actual question from a person in the meat space, and not just through uh, relationships.txt. So. Uh, you want to go into the question and give our perfectly unqualified yeah. advice? Yeah, yeah. And I tracked this down. I did the paraphrase here. Uh, so I will go ahead and read this. We are going to need to come up with a name. So ponder that. Okay. Um, okay. Hi, guys. I've been feeling incredibly isolated the last several months. Even before the quarantine, most of the people I've interacted with have been my family. And of them, only my partner and my grandmother are in line with me politically. Everyone else is a hardcore conservative Trump voter who makes comments ranging from ignorant to outright racist. I have friends who are more in my line, but partially because of how busy my job and our lives can be 
and partially because of COVID, I'm even more limited in interacting with them than usual. My job is also filled with Trump people, and I don't really feel safe voicing my opinions there for fear of repercussions. It's having a huge effect on my mental health, and I'm finding myself depressed and drinking more just to get through the days. Any advice would be appreciated. Sure. So you're right. First of all, we need a name. Uh, (laughs) I've got one. Uh, I don't know if it's the one we'll go with. But the uh, the black sheep of the family, but it's okay because the family maybe uh, has some moral compunctions. Um, Diane Nguyen from Bojack Horseman. From Bojack Horseman. <laughs> I mean, I was going to suggest Rick Sanchez, but this is sweeter at the very least. Huh. Oh, yeah, I suppose you're right about Rick Sanchez. <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, isolated okay, and drinking actually, more than Actually, be. well, you know, the depression thing, though, I think, and, and especially the connection to a grandparent, is this more of a Morty? Oh, dear. Okay, I'm here for it. Morty Smith. <laughs> you, you could do things inside. I mean, you could play guitar. You could masturbate. I don't want to masturbate. I want to conquer the planet. Oh. Poor Morty Smith, who I haven't seen the latest season of of Rick and Morty, but I know uh, he was drinking by the end of season three. So, uh, so oh, Morty. Morty, oh Morty, oh, hi Morty, I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, <sighs> Morty. First of all, I I want to tell you, you know, you are so not alone. I know you feel alone. But um, your description of the the family dynamics and the worker dynamics, I can tell you myself personally, um, that really resonates. And I also have a select people, uh, a select number of people, namely my wife and my sister, who are like my own lifelines for my personal ideologies. Um, also, before anything, I want to tell you that you matter, you are loved, and gently um, remind you that there are always resources out there to remind you how important and loved you are. You know, you mentioned you have a wife. I'm sure your wife loves you. Um, really, I just I, I lean in on you saying that you're finding yourself more depressed and turning to uh drinking to help you through the day and and i want to remind you that times are scary but that isn't the only way to get through the day and people care about you and and want to see you stay safe for a long time so in terms of actual um what can you do advice you know the the work thing is hard the word thing is especially hard, especially uh, if you have a, if you're in a job that has a bevy of Trump supporters, it can be really hard to stick your neck out there and and be the other. And you know, you mentioned fear of re- of repercussion, and so that's no good. Honestly, the best thing you can do in that situation, I think, is keep your head down. Um, at least at work, 
You know, you, mm. you don't have to potentially cause an issue, potentially put yourself in an unsafe situation by voicing direct opposition to Trump. But that also doesn't mean that you have to engage um, with other people talking about it in that way. You can always turn to the same thing of like, listen, man, I don't talk about politics. Um, and if nothing mm-hmm. else, one might be able to infer why you're not going to talk about politics, but it's not a for sure thing. And they might just go, okay, well, yeah, he doesn't care about that sort of thing. Your family, God, I'm, I'm dealing with the same struggle, brother. Um, especially with, <laughs> with my own dad and brother and to a lesser extent, my mom, um, that's where the lifelines are really important. You know, you mentioned your grandma, you mentioned your wife. I think with family, it is a little, um, a little bit safer to stick to your guns and make your opinions known. And at the risk of parental meme, just because we have different political ideologies at the end of the day, doesn't mean that we aren't family. Now, granted that's probably harder to say now more than ever, um, especially for anybody taking it seriously, what a danger Donald Trump can be to the country. And with certain family members unwilling to see that it, it is harder to let blood be thicker than ideology. But, I say this to, to remind you that you can stand up for yourself and your own political beliefs. And then it becomes on your family to still accept you for that. And hopefully if they are, uh, leaning red, maybe they're on the more Christian fundamental side. And if they're more Christian fundamental, maybe they're going to be able to turn that other cheek. Uh, I hope so for you, man. That's what I got. (laughs) No, I, I love it. I love it. Um, that gives a lot of credence to kind of a personal encouragement and a sense of engagement and a lot of beautiful idealism. And um, I think there's a lot there. So I, I would definitely say hear, hear Andy out on that part. I think I'm going to keep my advice a little more grounded to the practical and the day to day because I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm privileged in that, for the most part, most of my family, if they talk politics, are basically, like, most most of my actual blood relations are, like, party-line Democrats, which, granted, is right of me, but, like, we agree on enough things that I'm not heartbroken, um... And where I where I have differences there, um, or where I I'm sorry, where I have family members who differ from me on the other side of the spectrum, um, they're afraid of me because <laughs> I'm mean. Uh, thank you for laughing. Uh, where it comes for your situation, more than more than being able to stand up for yourself more than um, finding finding that sense there of peace within yourself. 
I'm worried about your sense of isolation. I'm worried about how alone you feel. You've got two people you can lean on, and I think that you should lean on those people. And you should tell them how you're feeling. You should make sure that they are aware that you are feeling isolated, that you are feeling unsafe. As much as they are safe people, I'm I'm assuming they are. Um, you you mentioned them explicitly that they are the people who are in lo- more in line with you. So I hope that they are safe for you to talk to. If they're not, I mean, I, I I don't know. I know there are people who will be like, yes, my partner agrees with me politically, but they don't want to, you know, make a stink in front of their family. Like, I could totally imagine that scenario. And if you run into that, basically, lean on them where you can. You need coping mechanisms, homie. Yeah, absolutely. Morty, you need to find ways to ground yourself in this. Like, I understand being surrounded by bullshit and feeling the need to speak up. I know very well that sensation. And I'm assuming that if these are the only people you're interacting with... Um, you, you know, COVID's an asshole. COVID means that we all have to kind of make our own little bubbles of humans that we interact with on when we do interact with people. And if that family needs to be in your bubble for whatever reason, you know, you can't, you can't just isolate yourself further from them. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know your situation. Maybe you live near them. Um, or interact with them regularly. I, I don't have that. I live hours away from my family. Um, given that situation, I, it doesn't sound like you're going to be able to limit your contact. So what you need are coping mechanisms. You need ways to isolate yourself, at least mentally from what you're dealing with here. You need to find ways to either let it go for your own mental health, not because it's not indicative of any sense of cowardice or like an inability to stand up to them or something, just for your own mental health, your own, like arguing constantly is exhausting. Defending positions constantly is exhausting, especially when you feel isolated and alone. And you're already going to need to do that at work. Andy's right. You're going to have to keep your head down at work. I'm sorry. That's uh, employers will absolutely use those things against you. So keep your head down. You can say, I don't talk politics at work or, you know, maybe crack it into a joke. You know, there's two things I don't talk about at work, politics and religion, you know, whatever it is. Find a line and just stick to that and just be like, no, it's, it's a personal thing. I don't talk about that. Um, because you're going to be surrounded by that at work, you're going to have to find ways to cope as best as possible at home or with your, with your family. And in those cases, I mean, I would legitimately just start looking up mental health centering practices. Um, you know, you can Google this stuff. You honestly can. Ways to deal with conservative relatives, inner mantras, self-talk for um, offensive relatives. Find something and try multiple things. 
Um, yo, if you want a BetterHelp link, like, shoot me a message. I'll send you mine gratis. Um, if you even have, like, a couple of weeks with a mental health counselor um, and just straight up say, listen, I only have a couple of weeks with you. I'm sorry. I don't have the ability to pay for regular counseling. I'm assuming you don't have the ability to pay for regular counseling. Um, but if you don't have the ability to pay for regular counseling, do the two week trial period or the one week trial period, have one meeting with a mental health professional and just literally be like, I need coping strategies for my shitty family because I'm drinking just to deal with them. Do that. That's one meeting, maybe two should be very low charge, if not free. And just ask for that. There isn't a counselor in the world who's going to be like, look, I get it. Economically speaking, here's what I've got for you. Here's some stuff to try. You need to seek out coping mechanisms to keep yourself grounded and able to deal with this. And then outside of that, you need to find your own community. I know you're isolated from your friends. I don't normally recommend social media for most things, but motherfucker, get a TikTok. Go on Tumblr. Join certain Facebook groups. I guarantee you, if you're on Facebook, you can Google a group that's called like my conservative relatives drive me nuts. Something like that. Oh, for sure. Find find community. Quarantine is keeping us from that. I'm going, I'm going back to my anarchist shit. Like find community. Even if they're people you can't interact with face to face, find a Facebook forum where you, or a Tumblr forum or something where you can just be like, hey, y'all, wait till I tell you what my um, brother in law said. Um, he, the, he, he went on this giant screed, and I just kind of had to sit there and take it and let people give you encouragement. These groups exist. You just yeah. need to take that extra step to find them and try them out. Look for your community. Look for your coping mechanisms. Maybe limit yourself to two drinks a night. Maybe. I I don't know. It helped me when I wanted to cut down my drinking. Maybe it will help you. I'm not sure. You need to find better outlets and coping mechanisms than drinking yourself into a stupor and beating yourself up. That's what you're doing here. I'm reading this like you're beating yourself up, dude. Morty. Get healthy. Absolutely. You know, Alex, you you mentioned just a a few things that I were going to make part of my final word. Um, You know, you really don't mention um, your friends so much here. You mentioned family, you mentioned work. Maybe that community is easier to find. Um, I know certainly throughout COVID, I have been a part of several standing Zoom calls. And and yeah, it it definitely uh, is its own isolation to have to see your friends through a computer screen and deal with that. But you can still see your friends. You can still talk to your friends. Um, So if you have people like that in your life, definitely reach out and and try to engage. Everybody's going through uh, some version of what you're feeling right now, but hopefully together we can actually come together and be together and feel less isolated. The other thing, just, um, you know, Alex mentioned grounding techniques and kind of in line with that, maybe look around and see if there is a hobby you can try out to help yourself feel less alone. And specifically what I'm thinking of is maybe gardening, 
maybe trying to you know take care of plants i know uh, a few people who are pretty good at keeping plants alive and and those become like their own people in a way a uh, little you know you keep something alive you care for it even if it's a plant you then assign uh, persona to that to that person um maybe if you're a particularly nerdy individual break out the warhammer models it's a little bit of an expensive hobby but it's a lot of fun and certainly can be meditative to construct something doesn't have to be warhammer it can be you know models of whatever you know get into puzzling something to help occupy your time and give yourself a sense of gratification at doing the thing and also might help you feel less isolated and lonely without actually having other people um, become a part of the equation. So with that, Morty, we care about you, man. Um, Definitely don't feel uh, afraid to reach out to us for that community. You know, we'll totally talk about whatever random bullshit uh, you want to talk about. (laughs) Clearly we're good at it. Um, uh, but with that uh, this has been love hate relationship and if you have a relationship question uh, as you can see we definitely especially when it's a real one uh, I, I say real one especially when it's one that like we don't find on a message board we definitely try to give real advice even though it's perfectly unqualified we care about you guys and your issues if you have a question you want to send to us you can send that to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read it that's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Emma, how's it going? Um, <laughs> you can also <laughs> Jesus. Uh, you can also uh, rate and review us on any or all of those. And I don't have my notes in front of me, and I really should remember how these outros. I should have memorized these outros. A We've long done time this ago, fifty-six Andy. times, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. We'd love it if you reviewed us on any or all of those. You can also tweet us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D with your questions and follow us to keep up with new episodes or just to hear Andy finally break and yell at me like for the first time ever. I'm proud of you. You yelled at me. Finally. Oh, Oh, God. I love this show. I'm so glad. I love you. Um, you can find me, Andy Bowell, at JovoCop2113 on Twitter or AndyBowell13 on TikTok. You can also find my other podcast, Cult Fiction, where I watch uh, movies of various quality with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson on all of the places Alex just said you can find LHR. That's correct. And the incomparable Stephanie Johnson never forgets her lines. Uh, I'm at a underscore X underscore R U I Z on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok because I like to keep things, you know, going all the way through and, and, and consistent. Uh, all of you, thank you for listening. Way off in this weird future world where it's hopefully not an apocalypse. Please, as always, tell your enemies. Tell your enemies.